So we are in the book of Acts, and we are going through these early chapters, and it's really a challenge to make sure that we don't idealize the early church. That is to say, there's so many things that are remarkable, so many things that we often wish perhaps in one form or another would be more present in the church in this day and age. And to some degree, that's apples and oranges. And what I hope in my preaching is that I don't have some utopian notion that if we would all just go back to living in rather primitive uh, cities and sharing one another's stuff, that everything would go great. The reality is the kingdom of God moves forward. And the texts that we read, especially the narratives, were never meant for us to always go back to and go, ah, if we could get back to the idyllic days. No, the reality is the kingdom of God moves forward and it unpacks and it grows and it changes. One of the great powers that the scripture has is that it is able to speak into every culture every time. Every unique opportunity, the power of the gospel is that it transcends cultural norms because it is replacing them with kingdom expectations and norms. But the reality of that means that to be wise and learning how to apply that in any given age and culture requires us both to know what's going on for the original hearers and then to be able to then take prayerfully the implications of what does it look like to be a community of faith radically knit together by the Holy Spirit in a way that we care for one another in this day and in this age, in the situation and the town in which we live. Each one is unique and each one has an application of the gospel that both honors the reality of where we are and transforms it at the same time. Never dismissing, but transforming. And so our heart continues to be, how is it that in our reflection on the early church, we begin to see in ever greater degrees the transforming power of the kingdom of God, both in individual lives and in a community of those gathered around the goodness of God. Now we're talking about in these sermons, what does it look like to have the foundation of open hands? What does it look like for this, this community to generate the reality that we talk at CVP about open hearts, open hands, and open doors. That understanding who God is allows us to be generous in all manner with our connections, with our gifts, with our talents physically, uh, with our insights and wisdom, and even with our finances. There's something happening that transforms the human fear which causes us to deal with a closed hand, only knowing if I can exchange for something equally valuable, but to simply live open to the Lord's leading. What does it take? Last week we looked at uh, the challenge that in our culture we value financial independence, but we also have great abundance. And what does it look like for us to begin to believe that the church, God's people gathered together, can be an effective means of distributing the funds that God has blessed us with in relationship to the tithe at a minimum to be the answer to so many of the challenges we see? It's going to be daunting as we interact with folks and say families to see some of the hurdles that they have. I heard again this week about somebody who has a job but can't get there regularly because they have a fine 
from some moving violation and that's inhibiting them from getting a new driver's license and if that fine could be removed, great things could open up for them. Well, how are we gonna have the wisdom to know and the resources financially perhaps even to address some of those questions? There are all kinds of things that begin to play out when we talk about living with an open hand and doing so wisely. But what we do know is that God's people have the resources in the generosity of God at some point to engage with one another so that there is no one in our midst, at least, that has need. That's an opportunity. It's a real opportunity, as daunting as it may be. So we follow up that challenge now with a rather awkward story about another problem that arises when God's people gather together because there are fallen human beings. And what it means to misunderstand what God is doing in trying to organically build the community of faith. And we as human beings begin to think about this as a program or a means by which we might ourselves gain status or gain position. We start at chapter 5. I'll read through verse 12. Hear now God's word. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money received from the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized those who heard and saw what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized those, uh, the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed miraculous signs and wonders among the people and all the believers meeting with one mind in Solomon's colonnade. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask for your ongoing presence of spirit, that we might grow in our assurance and knowledge and wisdom and grace, that we might extend to ourselves by your spirit, the grace and forgiveness we have, and that confidence, that presence, that intimacy with you, might extend then to others. And we pray that in this time of the word, your people might be encouraged in both aspects of who we are. We pray, Lord, that anything that's said that is not beneficial 
for the building up of your people or true, that those words would quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So we have a very dramatic situation here. And I wanted to, uh, to open with this idea. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's a management book floating around. I don't know, it's probably 10, 20 years old now. Who knows, time flies. Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And the author builds a pyramid up to what creates challenges in an organization. Of course, he states it in the negative, which I like, but you can then, of course, spin it towards the positive. So if you have these things, the organization flourishes. In the absence of these things, the wheels come off. And the foundation, the first tier uh, in this man's book is trust. If you can't trust one another, the organization is going to have problems. And then from there, if you don't trust, you can't have positive conflict. Interestingly enough, the question isn't how do you avoid conflict. The question is because of the need for conflict, for people to have different ideas, for an organization to grow, you've got to trust one another so that you can have positive conflict. If you don't trust one another, then the conflict will be avoided because then it's just who gets to win and uh, it is more defeative than it is positive. Let's just move on. Commitment. So if I know my opinion's not valued, that's why I don't bother bringing it up because there's no point in conflict and you don't trust me, then what's my commitment going to be to the organization? It's going to be fairly low. I'm not going to hold others accountable because I'm not committed. And so whether you do your job or don't do your job is no skin off my nose as long as my check clears on Friday. And therefore, I don't care about the results because if I don't hold you accountable, then whether or not we get anything done is meaningless. And of course, there are ways in which this could be perverted, but the bottom line is this makes sense even in Scripture. This man who wrote the book is touching on something that is true about the human condition and the way these things were designed. The reason that this is an effective book is because it touches on things that are true. And we are starting the church from the very beginning. And one of the things that's going to be important that perhaps is an explanation for God's very serious, quick response to Ananias and Sapphira is that you all are going to have to trust one another. Because you're going to have to know how to have trust and interaction and conflict. There's going to be conflict. You read the rest of the New Testament, not only from the outside, but also disagreements on the inside. There is a huge need for commitment. You don't hold things in common if you're not committed to one another. You don't sell property. You don't risk one another's lives in the pursuit of the kingdom if there's not commitment to where you're going. There has got to be accountability. Paul is going to hold us accountable. Clearly the Holy Spirit holds Ananias and Sapphira accountable. But the results, interestingly enough, are not fear in the sense of paralysis, but one of wonder and awe that allows the work of the apostles to go forward, which is why I went ahead and read verse 12. They continued to minister in Solomon's colonnade, and they gathered again in that important idea of being of one mind. So we're going to talk about trust this morning and truth. I want to suggest that truth and transparency, because I usually lie to cover something up, right? So truth and transparency equals trust, 
which then in the biblical understanding equals one mind. How we get to verse 12 and what we've talked about earlier about God's people being together in one mind, it's not because they turned off their brains, but it's because there was truth and transparency which allowed for a foundation of trust and therefore they had confidence they were in and of one mind by the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I want to encourage uh, some of the folks that are younger. I don't know if you know this, but if you looked at my, it's very humbling when I look back at my seminary notes because most of what I did was draw pictures of what the professor was telling me. There's few words and, and there's pictures of David killing Goliath or what have you. So if this morning you're more of a visual learner as a young person, I want to encourage you a couple of things to draw. One, you can draw pyramids. Second of all, you can draw what it means to build a new temple. We're going to talk this morning about God building a new temple and the foundations of it. And then lastly, we're going to talk about what it means uh, to trust one another and how our words matter. And maybe you can draw pictures that relate to being able to trust people and what it looks like for you to engage in that. So that place that says notes and doodles, most of the reason it says doodles is because your pastor doodles when he takes notes. So that comes from me. So first this morning, what's going on? A new temple's being built. We've got to understand the original context. What's going on in this scene? The scholars tell us that Jesus' predictions, and as he, and especially in his last week, was saying, there's a temple and here's a temple. I'm going to tear that down and I'm going to replace it in three days with this temple that's going to be made of living stones. All of that conflict language and transition from the old temple establishment to the new temple in Christ that's going to be living and breathing and made up of people like you and me with Christ as the chief cornerstone, that's happening in the early days of the church. And so as the disciples appear, they are presenting a new temple. And if we go into the Old Testament, we realize that temple is no small thing. And it's certainly not a place to waltz in without thinking about what you're doing. And so, of course, we have the early picture. And again, God has a tendency to reinforce what he's doing early on. You'll notice that later on, sadly, as God's people don't pay attention to what's going on in the temple it does appear that what happens in the temple doesn't matter much. But from the beginning, God invests it with power and holiness and says, you should be in awe of this place because I meet with you. And so when Aaron's two sons burn strange fire early in Leviticus chapter 10 in the tabernacle, they're struck dead. They have violated the holy place. They have riffed on the idea and come up with something new that really wasn't their role. This place is holy. It's set apart. It's filled by the presence of God. And in so doing, there is structure to it. And what we have in the early temple, we've already heard the Holy Spirit came down and there was fire. And the human temple was welded together in the Holy Spirit and they went out with power and they spoke about what God was doing. And we realized the temple is now moving and dynamic, but no less holy, no less set apart. And when you come in contact with it and your spirit is in the right place, you get up and walk if you've been broken your whole life. 
There's healing. The holiness of God has more life-giving power in it than we can possibly imagine. And so the disciples come in contact with a man who has never walked, and they say, not by our power, but by the power of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, get up and walk. And he walks. Why? Because the holiness of God brings life to those who are in reverence and awe and stand before it and desire its power to change them. Not to manipulate it, but to become overwhelmed by it, awash in it, servants of it, ministered to by it. There is a rather powerful verse in Leviticus 10 where God explains what happened to those two men. He says, Among those who approach me, I will show myself holy. That doesn't mean no one should approach him. That's not the point. The temple's there that people might approach God. The tabernacle's there that God might dwell amongst His people. The point is not staying away ultimately. The point is, yes, the holiness of God is there. And one must approach it with all the right reverence and right understanding of godly fear. That we might receive all of the life and the blessing that comes from the power and the holiness of God poured out on His people. It can't be contained, it can't be constrained, but it can be honored and it can be respected in such a way that in all humility, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And the father says, let's give him the robe, let's give him the ring. There is repentance, there is humility, and in the midst of that, the holiness of God then brings life. Joshua chapter 7 brings us another story about God taking His holiness seriously and things being set apart from Him seriously that gives context to what happens here in our chapter of Acts. Joshua 7, the sin of Achan, verse 1. The Israelites were unfaithful. If you go back to that passage, if you've got your scriptures, turn there. Joshua 7. Okay, Jericho just fell. Achan gets the bright idea to take a couple of fun things for himself. I mean, who's going to miss it? Buries it under his tent. Now, interestingly enough, chapter 7 does not start with Achan sinned. It starts with Israel was unfaithful. We'll tease out some of the implications of that in just a second. But... Achan stole from God. The city of Jericho was set apart as an offering to the Lord. What an amazing thing. I mean, again, I know I'm capable. Chances are in the whole camp of Israel, right, I'm not going to be the righteous guy. I'm going to be probably Achan knowing me going, well, I mean, you know, it's pretty. And I will use it for good things. I will take this and use it for the glory of God. I would have rationalized that. Many of you know my gift of rationalization. But I don't suffer alone. All Israel suffers. It's not my rationalization that impacts me. But my inability to respect the holiness of God impacts others. It is a challenge. We know there's some connection because Luke uses the same word in that passage in Acts, 
as the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses for God's description of setting apart the spoils of Jericho for himself. To set those things apart is a serious thing. I want us to think about this for just a moment because we're going to have to deal with the fact that Sapphira dies. And yeah, she technically lied, but she was just trying to be supportive. We want very much, and I know some of you have, and I have had conversations about this, to believe that our spiritual lives and our decisions are largely only impacting us. And that the extent to which they impact others, maybe even generationally, is something that we can debate. But there is a reality here. Just imagine being a faithful Israelite going off to fight the next battle in which most of them got slaughtered. And you're going, well, I didn't steal anything. I was faithful and God just destroyed Jericho. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel. We're going to go whack the next group. We're going to take the land of Israel. He is defeating death and all these people who sacrifice kids to idols. And we're going to be a part of setting the world straight. And you step onto the battlefield and you get slaughtered. You know, what happened? You know, you're the wife sending out your husband for another great, exciting battle against evil and death. And he's dead. Why? Because Achan stole something. There is a painful reality that how we interact as a community of faith impacts one another. It doesn't stop in the Old Testament. We are interwoven. The blessings of God are poured out of us, as are the challenges. Which leads us to a question which has to ask, is God trustworthy? That doesn't make sense to me. My understanding of fairness doesn't allow me to believe in a God who would allow that to happen or in any way thinks that that might be okay or just. How do we wrestle with a God who allows a battle to end in failure for his own people because one knucklehead stole stuff and then when they catch him, his entire family pays the consequences of his theft? How do we deal with that? It doesn't fit into our philosophy. It doesn't fit into our understanding of justice. The question, of course, is, is God trustworthy? And again, the best illustration I know of, here's another thing you can draw, kids, is Aslan. And Beaver's conversation with Lucy. He's a lion. Yes, he is. Is he safe? No. But he's good. How good is he? Draw the stone table. Right? If we had a God who did what happens in Joshua 7 or does what happens in Acts chapter 5 and we don't have the cross, then we have one vicious human creation of a divinity who will reap judgment on anyone like some kind of mafia don I will kill you and your family if you cross me. And that is exactly what God would be if we did not have the cross or the stone table and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Because God's response to that is to say, yes, this is how powerful sin and death is. It invades everything. Everybody dies. There is no one who is guiltless, and I will take all of that guilt on myself. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the only way we can stomach this text 
without trying to avoid ever doing business of this text. One chance, one answer is let's just pretend that Joshua 7 doesn't exist or that's the Old Testament angry God and thank goodness we got a new God. Oops. Acts chapter 5, we'll scratch that one out. We're going to make God safe. We're going to make him palatable for us one way or another. And he won't let us. But what he does say is I take the table. I take the cross. This is how death gets undone. Yes, evil impacts all of you. Yes, every action you do does have a reaction for somebody else. There's no way to keep your sin and lies contained in your own life. There's no way. We're organically connected. The human race is one. Your sin is not your own. But all of your sin was paid for by Christ. Is he trustworthy? He's trustworthy because he bears the weight himself. He is faithful and internally consistent in his love and in his holiness. That's why he's trustworthy. See, if we had a God who allowed evil to exist and just turned a blind eye, we wouldn't know that he had a sense of holiness and other, that there actually was right or wrong. And if we had a God only consumed with justice, we would live in fear and terror because we all know that the sword of Damocles would fall on us and our children at some point. But to have a God who is holy and turns his holiness, his otherness, and his justice upon himself gives us an opportunity for trust. How do we trust? Well, a lot of that is related to words. It's related to words. In this passage, it's our words and our deeds. It's their deeds, but it's how they describe their deeds that is the ultimate conviction, the ultimate uh, tragedy for Ananias and Sapphira. A couple of applications I want to encourage you in this morning. One, lying to protect a friend or spouse from God is a bad idea. It's a natural idea, but it's a bad idea. We can all identify with Sapphira. Right? We can identify with either a friend or a loved one, a child or a spouse who does something foolish, does something life-threatening, and for whatever reason we decide not to be open about it either before God or the church. And I know that that puts the church in an awkward situation, but yes, we are responsible for your spiritual care. Your officers take vows to love and to pray for you, to care for you. And if you lie to them about where you are, it's kind of hard for them to offer pastoral care. God help us if we just dismiss you and we think that we're better than you every time you tell us something you did wrong. Right? That is the the challenge. But we're called to live in this community. And there was an opportunity for Sapphira to tell her husband, no, she needed to be Abigail. She needed to say, don't bloody or don't be an idiot. We don't even have to sell this property. And for Pete's sakes, if we only give him half, we can tell him, this is what we got, we've given you half. They'd be happy with it. Why are we lying? Dear husband, 
dear spouse. Ananias needed to be Boaz, a redeemer, a carer of, I don't know what their interactions were, but he needed to protect and honor and be willing to extend himself. Boaz, when he takes Ruth into his house in that wonderful story in the Old Testament, basically translates all of his wealth into Ruth's and Naomi's family. Being open-handed, being a spouse that cares and protects. I cannot tell you the number of tragedies that begin in families and in marriages when people feel unable and unwilling or not safe, and I don't know what that word means necessarily, to allow their spiritual needs of their spouses to be known by others. We know the pain and difficulties caused by those who are raised in houses where they have to pretend that one of the parents isn't an alcoholic or a drug addict and what happens in the midst of that. We have to be a place where there is no shame, but there is power and those who can come alongside. Spouses who've been verbally and physically abused for years and years and years, and they cover up because they believe the church expects them to be without fault or blemish in their marriage or to admit that there are difficulties is somehow a defeat. Heaven help us why we get into these situations. I don't know what Ananias and Sapphira's reasoning was. Was it because they'd get a better status? Did they, was it politically motivated? Was it power? I don't know why they lied. I can certainly know what temptations I would have to lie about something like that. We can't trust one another if we're not truthful with one another. It erodes that foundation within the community. And so if part of what we need to always address in the church is are we creating standards or expectations for one another that eliminate the ability to be honest and transparent? Even good things that we didn't mean to create that expectation. Does that mean everybody in the church knows your business? My stars know. Right? We can't go from one extreme to another, but what does it mean to be able to express, I don't know how to care for my spouse as they spin into a world of bitterness. I don't know how to care for my spouse who's unable to forgive. I don't know how to encourage my friend to be generous and to stop being self-destructive in theft. I don't know how to care for fill in the blank. Dear friend in Christ, dear elder, please pray with me that I might care for my spouse well. Because here's what happens when we cover up. And what I mean by standing between your spouse and God is that when God begins to do things in your spouse's life or in your friend's life that is painful, that is surgery, you see them in pain, you see them squirming under the reality of the transformation. The refiner's fire is hot and it's starting to burn things off and you see that pain and your temptation is to pour water on it when you need to let the flames consume all that is dross. But I don't always know how to do that, which means I need you. I need my brothers and sisters in Christ that I might care for my spouse and my children well, not covering up, because what I know is if I cover up and say, yes, that's how much we paid for the piece of property, both of us are dead. And the fact that I haven't died as instantaneously as Ananias and Sapphira should not comfort me that I'm somehow avoided or God forgot to pay attention.
What we see in Ananias and Sapphira is what happens to all of us. The fact that it comes at this moment as a reminder of the ultimate holiness and justice of God and that we are to encourage one another in the growth in Christ, not in the covering up of our sin and brokenness. The only thing that covers sin is Jesus, not my lies. The only thing that should cover any sin is the love of Christ, not my equivocations. How can I come alongside and encourage? We have a situation where it is sometimes described as loyalty to cover. Maybe that's the card that Ananias played with Sapphira. But who are we supposed to be loyal to? Christ first. And only Christ. It's our spouse's only hope. It's our friend's only hope. Is if we're loyal first and foremost to Jesus. If we're first and foremost loyal to Jesus, we'll actually have life to give to our spouse and to our friends. But when we flip that, we open ourselves both up to the realities of death. Today, tomorrow, in the future. To be of one mind doesn't mean that we always agree, but it is that heart of openness, that heart of honesty that translates from the first century to today. We can speak truth, truth in love, truth for one another, that God's people might be cared for, the illusion of isolation removed, the care for the other, and the centrality of Christ, the reality that He covers all our sins because He took all our sins on Him. Can we not then be honest and open in that kind of security. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word as we desire to live with open hands. Lord, open our hearts in ever greater degrees to you. We know the only way to open our hands is to be overwhelmed by how full our hearts are in you. Make it so by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen.